book of Galatians. The book of Galatians. We are finishing up Galatians chapter 2. And I don't want to spend a long time reviewing all of the things that we covered last week. But I will touch on a couple things just briefly. Is everyone there? Galatians chapter 2. I'm going to start our reading today at verse 11. I'll read and then I'll pray. Verse 11 reads, Now when Peter had come to Antioch, I withstood him to his face because he was to be blamed. For before certain men came from James, he would eat with the Gentiles. But when they came, he withdrew and separated himself, fearing those who were of the circumcision. And the rest of the Jews also played the hypocrite with him, so that even Barnabas was carried away with their hypocrisy. But when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter before them all, If you, being a Jew, live in the manner of Gentiles and not as Jews, why do you compel Gentiles to live as Jews? We who are Jews by nature and not sinners of the Gentiles, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ, even we have believed in Christ Jesus, that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law, no flesh shall be justified. But if while we seek to be justified by Christ, we ourselves also are found sinners, is Christ therefore the minister of sin? Certainly not. For if I build again those things which I destroy, I make myself a transgressor. For I through the law died to the law that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died in vain. Father, we thank you for another opportunity to come into your house, to come into your presence. We pray, Lord, that uh, you would um, open our hearts and our minds by your spirit. I pray that as we work our way through Galatians, as we wrestle or through uh, these arguments that Paul is putting forward, I pray that you would give us wisdom and knowledge and understanding concerning you, concerning your word and concerning spiritual things. But Lord, beyond that, I pray that you would also give us a heart to understand how to apply these things in our lives. Help us to apply the truths of the gospel um, spiritually, but also emotionally and mentally and also uh, in our conscience. I pray, Lord, as we work our way through this, that you would help us to be settled 
that our good deeds mean nothing in your holy presence, but that we could rest solely on the finished work of Jesus. And because we have been united to him by faith, we have all that we need that pertains to life and godliness. We thank you for all these things. In the precious name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. You will remember that we are reviewing this section. Paul is talking about an encounter that he had with Peter. And Peter has come to Antioch, and he was fellowshipping with the Gentile believers, even though they had not been circumcised, even though they were not keeping the feast days um, and the dietary laws. And Peter, probably what Paul means when he says that he lives was living as a Gentile, was meaning that he was eating the same foods that the Gentiles ate. Okay. Uh, but then there were a group of Jews that came from Jerusalem. They said that they were from James. We don't know if they were really sent by James or not, but uh, they said that they were coming from James. And Peter, fearing their opinion, he began to separate himself from the Gentiles. We know that this group of people, when we look in Acts chapter 15, they were saying that because the Gentiles were not being circumcised and keeping the dietary laws and (coughs) and keeping the feast days, that they could not be saved. They were still considered unclean. Um, Now, let me drop this. I don't have this on my notes, but it just came to my mind. I actually had a conversation with someone about about, uh, this. They asked me, uh, could this be um, equated with the issue of racism? Okay. Um, and my answer is to this is no. Okay. No, I don't think that that is what is taking place in this passage. The reason I don't think that's what's taking place in this passage is because the Jews were not separating from the Gentiles because of their race. They were separating from them because they did not follow the same religious practices. So if they were circumcised and kept the dietary laws and, f- and, and followed the feast days, then they could fellowship with them. Okay? So it, it's not an issue of, of, of race. It is an issue of whether or not these Gentiles will follow the law. Okay? So the separation is the law. Okay. Paul says the same thing uh, in Ephesians chapter 2. He says that, that, that the law is like, uh, that he uses the word like a, parap- a parapet wall in between separating the two. And Jesus has broken this down. Okay. So, Peter, fearing these Jews, began to separate himself from the Gentiles. Paul begins to argue for the fact that Peter is being a hypocrite because he is teaching and saying one thing, but he's doing another. Peter had the vision from Christ, right? We remember over uh, in the book of Acts that, that Peter sees this vision. Jesus tells him, to eat, slay, and eat. And he says, I can't eat anything that's unclean. Jesus says, what I have made clean, you do not call unclean. And then he sends him to Cornelius' house. Uh, And even though Cornelius is not fully a Jew, he is saved. 
<coughs> so Peter understood the truth that Gentiles are free from the law in Christ. He was living as though he and the Gentiles were free from the law in Christ. And yet, because of his fear of other people's opinion, he became a hypocrite and lived differently from how he was teaching. Now, the reason that Paul uh, lays such an emphasis on this is because he says that in his actions, Peter was not being straightforward with the truth of the gospel. That in his actions, Peter was actually undermining the truth of the gospel. That by separating himself from the Jews, from the Gentiles, he was actually teaching them that they needed to do some good works in addition to their faith in Christ in order to be saved. And so Paul, he confronts Peter to his face on this issue. <clears throat> and I'm not going to uh, go through, again, all of these uh, different things here, but basically Paul's point is that we as Jews, talking about him and Peter, even they needed to put their faith in Christ. They had the law. They were circumcised. They were keeping the dietary laws. They were following the feast days. And even with all of that, they still needed Jesus in order to save them from their sin. Now, Paul, arguing for our freedom in Christ, he says in verse uh, 18, if I rebuild again those things which I destroyed, I make myself a transgressor. For I, through the law, died to the law that I might live to God. I want us to remember, because this is where we, we left off last week. What is Paul's argument? Paul is addressing the claims of these Judaizers that if Christians are free from the law, then Jesus is responsible when we sin. It's Jesus' fault. Because if we have the law, if we live according to the law, then we have restraints. We have things that will hold us in place that we can follow in order to grow in our walk with God. But if we say that Jesus has, has removed the law from us, he has set us free from the law, when we sin, it's Jesus' fault because he removed the mechanism that God had to keep us living righteous. Now, Paul picks up on this, and he's helping us to see, I ended with this last week, that his understanding of the law is different from our understanding. Now, I'm not going to go back to go through Romans chapter 7 and, and things like that, but um, what we have to remember is we believe that following the law helps us to be righteous, right? And again, I end it with, how do we know, if you ask someone to ask you the question, well, how do you know that you're spiritual, you're mature in Christ, right? Immediately, we go to what we don't do. I don't drink, I don't smoke, I don't 
don't curse anymore. Don't go to the club anymore. I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't. Okay. And so we believe that because we can, can check off a list of things that we don't do, somehow that makes us mature spiritually. The problem is, if we base our maturity off of things that we do not do, there must be a follow-up question, and that question must be, well, what do you do? Because all of us do something. <laughs> all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You've sinned in the past, and you consistently on a regular basis fall short of God's glory. So if your relationship with God is based on you being able to stop all of the sin in your life and to start doing all of the right things, Paul says that you fall in the wrong place. Because all of us are going to sin. All of us are going to fall short. The problem is we misunderstand the purpose of the law. The purpose of the law is not to make us righteous. The purpose of the law is to make us conscious of our sins. As Paul says, that the law is holy and righteous and good. I would not know that I'm coveting someone else's wife or things if the law said don't covet. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. But the law is not able to make us righteous. We can't depend on following the law in order to maintain or deepen or strengthen our relationship with God because the law is the point of conflict with God. The law is the point of conflict between us and God. Because when God says, thou shalt not, and we do it anyway, because God is holy and righteous, he has to punish us. So, Paul says that what Christ did was in him dying for us, we died with him to the law. So with respect to the law, we are dead. It has no more power over us. It cannot control us. It cannot kill us. It cannot condemn us because we are free. And this freedom, as well as our justification, is founded upon something stronger than the law. So how are we freed from the law? And how can we now live to God? The answer that Paul gives us in these two verses that we will look at today is by being united to Christ by faith. In fact, I would say that the foundation for the entire Christian life is our union with Jesus Christ. Because of our union with Jesus, everything that is true of him is also true of us. Now, Paul is arguing here that we don't need the law in order to help us grow in righteousness in our relationship with God. What we need is our union with Christ. Now, before I go on to explain verses 20 and 21, I want us to look just um, quickly at a couple of passages of Scripture that will explain, uh, give us a better understanding or picture of what the Bible says about union with Christ. Now, I can't say everything that the New Testament says about union with Christ. Okay. We, we will be here for a couple weeks. 
But, but if you want if you want to have an interesting project, okay, this is what you should do. Get a highlighter and read through the New Testament. And whenever you see fra um, prepositional phrases like uh, in Christ, in him, with Christ, with him, right? When you see phrases like that, just highlight every single one that you see. I guarantee you, every single page of the New Testament will be covered just about. Everything in the Christian life revolves around us being united to Jesus Christ. Now, I want you to turn really quickly to Romans chapter 7. Romans chapter 7. I want us to just get a glimpse of some of the things that the Bible says about our union with Christ. Romans chapter 7. Yep, Romans 7. I'm going to read verses 1 through 6. And what I want you to see here is that our union with Christ makes us dead to the law. Our union with Christ makes us dead to the law. Paul uses this argument uh, based on the Old Testament law that when you marry, you are bound to your spouse until that spouse dies. Verse 1. Or do you not know, brethren, for I speak to those who know the law, that the law has dominion over a man as long as he lives. For the woman who has a husband is bound by the law to her husband as long as he lives. But if the husband dies, she is released from the law of her husband. So then, if while her husband lives, she marries another man, she will be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law so that she is no adulteress, though she has married another man. Therefore, my brethren, you also have become dead to the law through the body of Christ, that you may be married to another, to him who was raised from the dead, that we should bear fruit to God. For when we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit to death. But now we have been delivered from the law, having died to what we were held by, so that we should serve in the newness of the spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. Now, notice what Paul says here. He says that, that marriage is of such a nature that you become one with your spouse. Right? You become one with your spouse. Now, he says that, that this union is is makes you such uh have this bond is 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 so strong in spiritually speaking in God's eyes that there is no such thing as divorce you can divorce that person and you can go marry someone else but you're still bound <laughs> spiritually to this to this person so that by being married to someone else you're considered an adulterer because you're still bound to that first spouse. He says, however, if that, if that spouse dies, you are free from that spouse so that you can marry someone else and you're no longer considered an adulterer. Why? Because you're free from your first spouse. Now, he says the same thing is true of us. He says that we, as human beings, we are married to the law. We're bound to the law. 
you must obey the law. But what Jesus did when he died on the cross and and we dying with him because of our union with him, we are dead to the law so that we are no longer bound to it, but we're now free to marry another, and that is Jesus Christ, the one who was raised from the dead. So that we no longer have to obey the law, we can now live according to the Spirit. Everyone see that? Our union with Christ in his death is what sets us free from the law, and our union with Christ in his resurrection life is what gives us the ability to live according to the Spirit. Number two, I want you to look at Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6. One chapter to your left. Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6. He says, I want you to see here that union with Christ sets us free from sin and is the basis for our sanctification and our resurrection. So sanctification means to grow in righteousness. So us being united to Christ is the foundation for our sanctification, right? Spiritually mature, our spiritual maturity, and is also the foundation for our future resurrection. Listen to what Paul says starting at verse 1 of Romans chapter 6. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? Or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. For he who has died has been freed from sin. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. Knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more, death no longer has dominion over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. Likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body, that you should obey it in its lust. And do not present your members as of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. Now, think about what Paul is saying. If we go back to chapter 5, Paul starts to say that where sin abounds, grace much more abounds. And so, uh, being the sinners that we are, we would say, well, if, if God is going to give me more grace, the more I sin, well, let me just sin a whole bunch so that I can continue to get more and more and more of his grace. And so Paul starts off with chapter 6, verse 1, shall we continue in sin 
so that grace can abound. Like, no, that's absurd. Anyone who believes that their relationship with Jesus Christ gives them to f- the freedom to live in sin has not understood the gospel. He says, when we accept Jesus by faith, we are united to Christ. And because we are united to Christ, we died with him. We were buried with him. And when he got up, we were resurrected with him. And now that he lives a new kind of life, he says you can live that same new kind of life. Instead of living for sin, you can live to God. Now, the difference here is, as he says, that we can, uh, that this union with Christ is the basis of our spiritual maturity and growth. He says, sin will not have dominion over you because you're not under law, but under grace. Following the law, as Paul will argue as we in, in, in Galatians 2 and in chapter 3, Following the law causes an increase of sin in your life. But your union with Christ, if we remember, like he says, likewise, reckon yourself dead. If you remember and keep in mind that when Jesus died, you died as well. You have died to sin. The law is no longer your master. Sin is no longer your master. You were buried with Jesus, you were raised with Jesus, and now you can live the new kind of life that Jesus has. If you constantly continue to keep that in the forefront of your mind, it will help you to deal with the sin in your life. The law can't do that. Number three, not only uh, does union with Christ make us dead to the law, Not only does union with Christ set us free from sin and is the basis for our sanctification and resurrection, um, I want us to look in Ephesians chapter 2 and see that our union with Christ caused us to be made alive, raised up, and seated with Christ in heavenly places. Ephesians chapter 2. And I want us to remember that these things are not true of us in the future these things are true of us right now. Listen to what Paul says, just really quickly, a couple verses, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4. He says, But God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, he what? Made us alive together with Christ. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Listen, he's saying that when Jesus was raised from the dead, you got up. Because you are united to Christ. He, he says that when Jesus ascended to heaven 
and was seated at the right hand of the Father, he says, you were also seated in heavenly places with him. Every single thing that is true of Jesus is true of you, not in the future when you get to heaven. It is true of you right now. You're already made alive in Christ. You have already been resurrected. You have already been seated in heavenly places in Christ. Paul's favorite word, and he used a phrase, in Christ. He uses some 90 times. <laughs> because you are in Christ, every single thing that is true of him is true of you. Now, I want you to see this in Ephesians chapter 5. I was, how do we illustrate this union, this bond, this oneness that we have with Christ? Paul gives us the greatest illustration and example in Ephesians chapter 5. And we have to remember that God has created this world in such a way that everything points to Christ. Everything points to Christ. And it is no difference when we look at the bond between a husband and a wife. The same level of, of intimacy that a husband and a wife shares, right, that is a picture that's pointing us to the union that we have with Christ. The, the bond and the oneness that we have with, between husbands and wives, that is pointing us to the bond and the unity that we have in Christ. That same level of, of intimacy and passion that we have between a husband and wife, that is the same bond that we have with Christ, just more deeper. Listen to what he says, Ephesians chapter 5, verse 22, a passage that many of us will probably scratch from the Bible. <laughs> I remember one of my friends when I was at Morgan, he would always joke, a um, friend uh, named Mark, he would always uh, uh, say that I was his spiritual advisor. And uh, I don't know, he came and asked me about this passage one day, and we were talking about it. He was like, man, I'm going to get Ephesians 5.22 tattooed on my arm. I said, please don't. I said, please don't. Please don't. <laughs> you're going you to really, really, really live to regret that. <laughs> Genesis, I mean, uh, uh, Ephesians 5.22, wives, submit to your own husbands. I'm like, please don't tattoo that on your arm, Mark. <laughs> Wives, submit to your own husbands. What's the next four words? As to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife. Next phrase. As also Christ is head of the church. And he is the savior of the body. I hear men, the husband's like, yeah, that's right. <laughs> J just wait. <laughs> I remember at my old church, uh, husband, husband brought his wife up to me and said, he said, can you tell my wife that the Bible says that she needs to submit to me? 
I was like, oh, you're not going to set me up with this one. <laughs> not going to set me up with this one. I said, well, yes, it, you know, it, it does say that uh, your wife is supposed to uh, set you up. I mean, it's supposed to set me up. <laughs> your wife is supposed to submit herself uh, to, to you. That, that is true. I said, but in Ephesians chapter 5, the wife's responsibility is only found in like two verses. The husband, the list of husband's verses are like three times as long. I said, if you really want to argue for your wife being submissive to you, you have to do three times as much work as she does. And he just looked at me like, <laughs> and walked away. <laughs> Says, verse 24, therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. That's it. Wives, be submissive to, to your husbands the same way that a, uh, the church is supposed to submit to Christ. And I, I get this question all the time, well, what does submission mean? Right? <laughs> it must mean something different in Greek than it sounds in English. And I'm like, no. No, it's not different in Greek. It's the, it's the same thing in Greek and English. <laughs> and we know that it does because in chapter 6, verse 1, when it says, children, obey your parents in the Lord, it's the same word. Husbands, verse 25. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. We can do a whole sermon right just on that verse. Husbands, love your wives the same way Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. And my argument still is this. I say this to every person that we talk about this. Is that I, I would say that I, I don't think that wives would have a problem submitting to their husbands if their husbands were loving them the same way that Christ loved the church. Because The word submit means to voluntarily place yourself under someone's leadership. So, so if you have a problem with someone voluntarily putting themselves under you, maybe it's because they don't feel the love of Christ coming from you. Maybe just like Jesus was seated on the throne, enjoying the scene of heaven, and then he got up and came to earth to take care of our needs. When we sitting on the throne watching ESPN, and she says, honey, can you just come do the dishes? That's women work. <laughs> no, we, 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 we get up and we, we turn off the game and we serve our wives. And when we have that type of leadership the same way that Christ loved us, I don't think you'll have a problem with submitting to our leadership. Husbands, Love your wives just as Christ also loved the church 
and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word. How much time do you spend in the word with your wife? How much time do you spend leading her spiritually? Can we even do that when most of our wives come to church while we're still sitting at home? That's not on my notes. We're going to keep moving on. from <laughs> That, verse 27, he might present her to himself, a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. So husbands ought to love their own wives, their own wives, as their own bodies. <laughs> love your own wife as your own body. Take care of your wife the same way you take care of your body. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as the Lord does the church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. Verse um, um, 31, get take picking this up from Genesis with Adam and Eve. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Now listen to what Paul says in verse 32. This is a great mystery. All of the things that I'm talking about between a husband and a wife, a wife submitting to her husband uh, the same way she submits to um, um, the church submits to Christ, a husband sacrificing for his wife the same way that that uh, uh, Christ sacrificed for the church, the same way that uh, that uh, a man should leave his mother and father and be joined to his wife and the two of them become one. This is a great mystery. But I speak concerning Christ and the church. I'm telling you about the relationship between a husband and a wife, not because I want you to, to understand the relationship between a husband and a wife. You need to do that. <laughs> okay, that's a, it's true. Cause, so he comes back at the last verse. And he says, even though I'm talking about Christ and the church, wives, make sure you respect your husbands. And husbands, make sure you respect your, I mean, you love your wives. So, so we don't want to lose sight of the picture here between a husband and a wife. But what we need to understand, that the illustration, the reason that God created marriage in the first place is to show us how intimately connected we are to Christ. All of this is a great mystery, but I'm speaking to you concerning Christ and the church. We are members of his body, of his flesh, of his bones. The same way that Adam and Eve became one and united as one in marriage, you are joined to Christ. Again, our union with Christ is the basis for everything in the Christian life. Everything that is true of him is also true of us. Everything that he has belongs to us. His perfect righteousness is our righteousness. His death was our death. His burial was our burial. His resurrection was our resurrection. We are seated with him in heavenly places, and his inheritance is our inheritance, as Paul says in Romans chapter 8. We are joint heirs with him. Excuse me. 
again, if you want to see this worked out in the New Testament, just go through the New Testament of highlighters. When you see with him, with Christ, right, just, just highlight them. It's, it's all over the New Testament. Salvation is union with Christ. And every single benefit that you receive from salvation comes as a result of being united to Christ. Now, in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, Paul summarizes our union with Christ with one of the most memorable statements in all of Scripture. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Now, I want you to re- remember the context here because, again, Paul is addressing the question of who is to blame when we as Christians sin, since Jesus has set us free from the law. And Paul makes two quick points here. First, he says that Christ is not the blame, right? We, we are the blame for our own sin. But he also goes on to say that we cannot return to the law because instead of being the foundation for a righteous life, the law actually produces more transgressions in our lives. So the question for us becomes, what other than the law can produce righteousness in the life of a believer? If, if keeping the law, following the Ten Commandments and the other rules in the Bible, if, if those things cannot produce righteousness in our lives, what can? Paul brings us back to union with Christ. Being united to Christ is the only thing strong enough to keep a Christian from sinning now that we are free from the law. So what keeps us from lying and stealing? What keeps us faithful to our spouses and family? What puts to death our pride so that we can humbly apologize? What is supposed to make the life of a Christian so radically different from everyone else? Paul says that it is our co-crucifixion with Jesus. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. And we know from Romans chapter 6 that we've read, because we have been crucified with Christ, what he calls the body of sin, our, our flesh, our, our, our longing for sin, that old man died. Who I was before coming to Christ, the, this, the sinful person that I was, um, the lying, cheating, stealing, profane heart having, <laughs> right? You fill, fill in the blank. Who I was, that person is dead. That person was nailed to the cross with Jesus. That person was buried in the tomb with Jesus. And because that person is dead, I am now free because I got up (laughs) with Jesus, my new man. I'm now free to live the new life that Jesus had after his resurrection. 
Our union with Christ is the only thing strong enough to keep a Christian from sinning because Jesus put to death the old man who I was apart from him. He put that person to death on his cross. Paul goes on to say, after he says, I've been crucified with Christ, he says, it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. Now, he says, I've been crucified with Christ. Who I was apart from Christ is dead, but Christ has made me a new creation, right? Remember our, our memory verses? Right. <laughs> the old has passed away. The new has come. I'm a new creation in Christ. So, so my old man has died. Me as a new creature in Christ, I'm alive, but it is not as if I'm the one doing the living. Jesus himself, because I am united to him, I am in him and he is in me. Because I'm united to Jesus, it is as if Jesus himself is living his life through me. That's how intimately close our relationship with Jesus is. Even though I still live in this body, which is sometimes and oftentimes pulled by sinful desires, I live by faith in the Son of God. That's what Paul says. He says, Christ is living in me. And the life that I now live in this flesh, in this body, right, that's still tempted by the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, the, the life that I'm now living in this body, I must live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I think what we don't realize is Paul here is giving us, at the end here, what should motivate us to remind ourselves that we are dead to sin and alive to God. And that motivation is simply that he loved me and gave himself for me. Now, if Knowing Jesus loved me enough to sacrifice himself for me. How could I continue to live in the sin that he died to set me free from? That's Paul's point in Romans chapter 6. He loved us so much that he came from heaven. He gave up all of the, 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 the benefits that he had to sacrifice himself for us, to set us free from sin. And knowing that he loved us and gave himself for us, that should motivate us to allow Jesus to live his life through us as we live by faith. In addition to this, how can I turn away from faith and back to the law as a means of righteousness? How, how, can I, how can I unashamedly live in sin, knowing that Jesus died for me? But also, how can I turn back to the law that he set me free from? How can I turn away from his grace in order to live in my own righteousness? The truth is that if we turn from Christ back to the law, what we are doing 
is trusting in our own ability to please God by keeping the law. And Paul says in verse 21 that in doing this, we are setting aside the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died in vain. Now, think about what Paul is is saying. This whole end of this section is couched in the idea of how do we grow in our walk with God? How do we restrain sin in our lives? Paul says it can't be done through the law because the law only teaches you that you are sinful. And if you continue to lay the law as the foundation of your spiritual maturity in Christ, you will constantly be frustrated, beating yourself up. Because no matter how many things you do right, you will still continue to fall short. And your conscience will eat away at you. So he says, the law can't be the foundation of our relationship with with, with God. It has to be Jesus Christ. Now, the problem is, for one group of people, right, when we talk about legalism, there are a group of people, right, in the world that believe that they are good enough and they can work hard enough to... Make God happy (laughs) to please God. And so we have people who quit their job, fly around the world, live in poverty, (laughs) helping people out, medical missions, doing all of these things, because they think that by doing enough good deeds, they can get themselves into a right relationship with God. Paul says that if you think like that, you are setting aside the grace of God. You're just taking God's grace, and you're just sitting it on the shelf. Because if you think like that, what you're saying is Jesus did not need to die. Jesus died in vain. He didn't have to die to save me because I'm good enough. I can do something good enough to please God so that God would give me a relationship with himself. Jesus didn't have to die. I'm not that bad. (laughs) But there is another group of people. We talked talked before about uh, uh, the idea of gnomism. There are a group of, of people who believe that now that I'm saved by grace, now that I'm saved by grace, because of my appreciation for what God has done for me, I'm going to govern my life by the law. Now that I'm saved, I'm going to follow the law and keep the law in order to please God. I would also say that to people who think like that, you are setting aside the grace of God. Jesus died in vain. Now, you're setting aside the grace of God and real and not and 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 saying that Jesus died in vain for a very different reason though. Now, first, I would say 
that the first group of people, those who are legalists, right, they are saying that Jesus' death was unnecessary. It was unnecessary because I'm good enough to do something to, to merit my own salvation, right? But those people, and, and this primarily falls into the category of us as Christians, right, who feel that, that out of gratitude, I'm going to follow the law in order to please God. What we're saying is that Jesus' death is no longer necessary, it's no longer necessary because we think that now that we are saved by grace, we can maintain and deepen our relationship with God based on our own works. What we fail to realize is that the Bible says repeatedly that the just shall live by faith. Those who are righteous, they live by faith. Not by good deeds, not by their works, not by keeping the law. If you are righteous, you will live by faith, by trusting God, by trusting in the finished work of Jesus. Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection is not just the basis for beginning a relationship with God. It is the basis for the entire Christian life. Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, the gospel, is what we need to get into a relationship with God. It is also what we need every single day of our lives to maintain a relationship with God. It is what we need every single day in order to deepen our relationship with God. Because everything in your relationship with God centers on Jesus' perfect, finished work. The reason that God accepts you as his child is because of Christ and his finished work. The reason that after we sin, I mean, after we are saved and we turn our back on God and live in sin, because all of us do. You know, we say, I'm just going to hang out with sin for a little while and then we stay too long. The reason he doesn't kill us on the spot is because of the death, burial, and resurrection of his son. The reason he does not reject us and throw us away is because of the death, burial, and resurrection of his son. The reason that we are guaranteed and we are assured that even though we fall short of his glory, that we will make it to heaven is because of the death, burial, and resurrection of his son. I want you to look at one last passage of Scripture. One last passage of Scripture. It's not even on my notes, but this just came to my mind. I want you to look at 1 John. 1 John. So we can see this. The gospel, we have misunderstood. We think that the gospel is just the way that we get saved. But if you re read through Paul's letters, for all of his life, for the 30-some years of his ministry, he constantly came back to the gospel. 
uh, trying to un- deepen his understanding of the gospel, applying to every single situation of his life the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Again, even though we sin, Jesus and his perfect work is the reason that we will never be rejected. Listen to what Paul says. I'll start at verse 5 of chapter 1. 1 John chapter 1, verse 5. This is the message which we have heard from him and declare to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Now listen to what he says in in chapter 2, verse 1. He says, my little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. Bless you. And if anyone sins... Now, you can't see this here in, uh, in, the, in the English text, but in, in Greek, this is emphatic, right? This on clause here is emphatic. When he says, and if someone sins, it's emphatic. You will. And when anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one, and he himself is the satisfaction for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the whole world. He says, you're going to sin. You're going to fall short of God's glory. God is not going to throw you away. The reason he's not going to throw you away is not because you're so special and he loves you so much. Because you have a lawyer that is sitting at his right hand. And this lawyer is is pleading on your behalf. And he's saying, Father, I paid for that. I am the satisfaction for their sin. It's the gospel. His death, burial, and resurrection is, and our, our union with him in his death, burial, and resurrection is the foundation for every single thing in the Christian life. It is the foundation of our justification. It is the reason that God declares us righteous, even though we are sinners. It is the foundation of our sanctification, the reason that he will continue to work in our lives every single day until he brings us home to make us more righteous. And it is the foundation of our glorification. It is the reason that one day you will stand in his presence holy and blameless. Your good deeds count for nothing in God's sight. The only thing that counts in God's holy sight is the finished work of his son. And because you are united to Christ, because you are in Christ, because you were 
buried with him, you died with him, you were buried with him, you were resurrected with him, and you were raised with him and seated with him because of him. God says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Now, the reason I want us to to keep this in mind is because, number one, Paul is trying to help us to see that because we are united to Christ, we don't we no longer need the law. Okay. Um, now, when I say that, I do not mean that we can live in sin. <laughs> okay. That, that that's not what I mean, right? What I mean is we can't please God by following the rules and regulations of the Bible because we will all fall short. Right? Um, and James says that when you break one of the laws, you're guilty of the whole law. Right. So the law cannot be the foundation of our relationship with God. But being united to Jesus, he sets us free from the law so that we can live in the spirit. And the Holy Spirit, as we will see when we get into Galatians I'm, I'm chapter 5, you can live in the spirit, you walk in the spirit, <laughs> right? Uh, and, and, and when you live in the spirit, you walk in the spirit, you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. The law is powerless to overcome the sinfulness of your flesh. Only the Holy Spirit can do that. So that even though you aren't following the law, you can still live a life that pleases God. The second reason that we are, are doing this is because I, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to, as Paul, Paul is, is consistently giving us the theology that we must adopt. Okay, you think about um, the book of Ephesians. There's six chapters in Ephesians. The first three chapters is all about all of his theology, what you must believe, right? And then the uh, last three chapters is, is all about how you're supposed to apply this in your life. So it's about ethics. We can't live our lives the right way if we don't adopt the right theology, right? The understanding of what the Bible teaches. So many of us are struggling and wrestling um, with our acceptance before God. Well, I, you know, I, I, I did this back in 1989, and so I'm not even sure if God really loves me. <laughs> it's like, you know, in 1989, I was only nine years old. <laughs> God remembers, but because he has to remember all things. But do you really think God is holding something against you that you did back in 1989? <laughs> but because we don't accept the th- thinking of or the theology of the New Testament in our consciences, we let our consciences beat us up. And we're being robbed of of, of precious time that we could be spending with God and, and, and experiencing God, the fullness of God, because we're constantly walking around, well, I don't... I don't know. I don't know if God really loves me. I don't know if he can accept me. I don't know if he can forgive me. I keep doing this. I keep making this mistake. And, and, and so we're walking around with spiritual low self-esteem 
instead of being rooted and grounded in his love, as Paul says. And what I'm trying to drive home to each one of you is your good deeds mean nothing to God anyway. <laughs> so so what, what difference does it make if you, if you are out here living a, a, a mostly righteous life? Now, let me not, we should, again, we're not going back into antinomianism, meaning, that, you know, we don't care about the law. We do what we want. We live in sin. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is, is we think about ourselves too much. We, we think about ourselves too much. I, I'll use this example. I know the person won't, won't, won't mind me using this example, but in, in, in Bible study, sometimes we, we, uh, we're talking and, and one person says, like, well, I, I don't know if, you know, if my, if, you know, my, my prayer, if God's hearing my prayers and um, because I don't get on my knees when I pray. I, sometimes I just don't feel like it. Okay. And I'm like, well, you got to get on your knees to, to pray for God to hear you. No, God is, God is not looking at the position of your body. He's looking at the position of your heart. But, but oftentimes we feel that because, because I didn't get in the right position, that God didn't hear me, I'm not. Listen, we're focused on ourselves too much. Instead of focusing on Christ. You're not going to be perfect. Bless you. You only got the coronavirus, you all. <laughs> y'all been, been, been coughing a lot. I had to come in here with my mask next week. <laughs> like, I be preaching like this. <laughs> you did go to New York this week now. <laughs> no, I'm just joking. But listen, we, 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 we focus on ourselves too much instead of putting our focus on Christ. No matter what you do, you're never going to be good enough. I know people get mad when I say that. You're not good enough. Now, do you know why that's a, good, that that's a hopeful statement? It's because I don't have to keep trying to prove myself to God. God is not a drill sergeant parent where you got to, you know, oh, make this bed all over again. It's not tucked right in the corner. Okay. You know, I know about that. My father was in Vietnam. I'm like, Lord. I'm like, <laughs> like, that bed ain't made right. <laughs> well, that's because I just took the covers and said, and that, and that was it. I'm getting back in there tonight. Why I got to keep making this bed there? Why well, I gotta make the bed every day before I go to school? I'm getting back in it when I come home. <laughs> right, but but he's not he he's not a taskmaster master waiting to beat you over the head every time you make a mistake. He's the loving father of the prodigal son standing on the porch waiting for you to come home. Stop beating yourselves up 
because you fall short of his glory. Now, um, I, I, I'm saying that knowing that some people are like, all right, cool. But again, he says, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Like the answer is no. You, you do remember that Hebrews chapter 12, that, that he will spank every child that he loves. Okay, so, so you, can, you can, hey, I got grace. I'm just go be free. Okay, go ahead. God has a spiritual belt. <laughs> right? He has no problem with, with spanking you. And there is no spiritual CPS. All right, so, but... <laughs> But what, what, I, what I'm trying to get, a, get us to see is we have to put our trust in Christ. We have to keep looking at him, right? That every single day, we're going to blow it. We're going to make mistakes. I was driving here. I didn't mess up, but I was riding every light. I'm just like, I'm like, this person don't get out my way. <laughs> but I'm like, I'm on my way to church. I got to keep it calm. I can't have road rage. But I'm just like. I, w- I just wanted to like just be speed into the other lane and go around them, and I'm like, Lord, I keep failing. I've been I've been telling them I had road rage for like the last 12 years, <laughs> and I just I just can't get over it. <laughs> right? But guess what? When I get to heaven, he's not gonna be like, you know what? You you can't come in because you had road rage. Right? Stop looking at yourself and look to Christ. Because that's the only reason God has accepted you anyway. Now, again, put the little asterisk and think about James. Now that he has accepted you, you know, you should, should, should do your best to live as a living sacrifice. But even that doesn't carry any weight before God. We do those good deeds. Not because we think that that's going to give us some special favor with God. We just do it because we love him. But it still doesn't merit anything in his sight. As Jesus said, you, when you do what you're supposed to do, say, I'm an unprofitable servant. I just did what I was supposed to do anyway. So we're finishing up uh, Galatians chapter 2. Remember I said that roughly... The book of Galatians is broken up into uh, three sections, right? The, the first is autobiographical. Paul is, is laying the foundation for his apostleship. But then uh, in, the, in, in the next two chapters, it's really theological. He's, he's making a, a, a very tight argument um, about why we should not return to the law. Okay, so we're going we're gonna to spend some time in chapters three and four. Um, I, I probably won't go too deep because you all be like why, why why we why we here why we talk why we talk about this like can we just skip the the fruit of the spirit in chapter five okay so um but i want to want us to look at just a couple things in um in chapters three and four uh, so that we can understand um paul's thinking about the law and how um the law relates to us so his point is that if you want to follow the law in order to, to prove that you are good in God's sight, you are going to be cursed. Because the, the law cannot make you righteous in the sight of God. All right. So you can read through chapters three and four. All right. By now, you should probably be, be through Galatians 20 times already. Don't raise your hand if you're not. But 
Um, but if you are, if you finish reading the book of Galatians, you can go to the book of Genesis, right? I want you to read Genesis five times, five times, okay? Um, I'm still, I don't know why, but I'm still going to read it 20 times and working my way through it. I'm just like, I ain't going to make it. <laughs> so, so, um, but, but um, finish up the book of Galatians. By now, if you've gone through it 20 times, you should be having a, you know, really understanding, understanding Galatians, right? But um, keep working your way through it um, because we want to make sure that, that we have these things rooted in our hearts. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you today for allowing us to be able to, to look at the gospel as Paul is presenting it in Galatians. We thank you that even though we were sinners and unrighteous, you decided to unite us to your son. And because we are united to Christ, we have eternal life and an inheritance and justification, sanctification, glorification. We, we have everything that your son possesses. As a matter of fact, we are joint heirs with him because we are united to him so that everything that is his belongs to us. And everything that is true of him is true of us right now. I pray, Lord, that you would teach us how to reckon ourselves to be dead indeed to sin, how to reckon ourselves as united to Christ. Help us to be able to see all of those things that is true of Jesus is true of us and help us to keep reminding ourselves of those things until it becomes second nature. So that when our conscience wants to beat us up, we can remind our conscience that I'm dead to that and I'm alive to God. And when, our, when our hearts would condemn us, as John says, God is greater than our hearts and he knows all things. I pray, Lord, that you would help us to truly adopt a gospel-centered worldview and mindset so that we could see the gospel in every single thing, every single day, help us to work on better understanding the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ and how that applies to us every day. We thank you, Lord, that because of our union with Christ, you have begun a good work in us. And you have promised, even though we fail and fall short and, and we stumble and sometimes for, for a short period of time, sometimes for years, we, we sit on the side of the road in sin. But you have promised that if you have started a good work in us, you will complete it. It's the result of our union with Christ. We thank you, Lord, that because we are united to Christ, your word says that nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God. I pray, Lord, that you would keep working these things in our hearts and minds and our soul, our spirit and our conscience so that we could every single day live our lives in gratitude, not because we think that we are carrying favor with you, but just because we loved you because you loved us and gave yourself for us. We thank you for all of these things. In the precious name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.